What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. No! She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she's progressing at an accelerated pace. Also accelerating at an extraordinary pace, the number of intriguing films coming out between now and year's end. That was Willem Dafoe in one of them, Poor Things, from director Yorgos Lanthimos. Poor Things comes to theaters this weekend, and it's just one of the films we'll devote some time to on this week's show, along with Todd Haynes' May December and Ridley Scott's Napoleon. That and more. You think you're great just because you have boats. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. A lot to get to this week, Josh. We've been catching up on the deluge of year-end releases we've been blessed with recently, and we'll get to some of those films in a bit. But first, I'm dying to know which Saltburn Hive you belong to. Mm, yes. You're going to tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm getting my t-shirt made. Should be able to sport that soon. We'll Great. get to that. We'll get to that. Saltburn, if you've missed it, is Emerald Fennell's follow-up to 2020's Oscar-winning Promising Young Woman. Barry Keoghan plays an Oxford University scholarship student who's invited to spend the summer at a lavish family estate by a wealthy classmate. No, it's not Graceland, but the classmate is played by our new Elvis himself, Jacob Elordi. Promising Young Woman, a pretty divisive film. Had some champions, had detractors. Saltburn, it seems, has taken that divisiveness to another level. It does have its champions who find it to be entertaining and an energetic class satire. And then you have people like our friend Scott Tobias, who I tend to find myself aligning with quite a bit on movies, who called Saltburn one of the most extravagantly terrible movies I've seen in a long time. <laughs> Poor Scott. Where do you fall, Josh? <laughs> Where do I fall? <sighs> Boringly, like Promising Young Woman, pretty much in the middle because these are two films now that are very exciting and I get swept up in and then, oof, take some turns, make some decisions that I can't get on board with at all. But you know what? That is dull. I'm going to pick a side. I'm going to be... Team Saltburn. Let me give this a positive review only okay. because, Adam, I've seen some of these negative reactions and I do think they're way, way overly antagonistic towards this movie. I enjoyed this film probably for a good three quarters and will recommend it on that basis. I think every performance from Barry Keoghan on down is exceedingly entertaining and yeah, the bottom drops out on it. Absolutely. I'm with everyone there. I think perhaps it's a degree to how much does that bother you? And were there other things that bothered you till you get to this, to that point? This clearly wants to be, you know, talented Mr. Ripley for the cool kids. It's trying so hard. And that was fine until it tried triply hard with a last third that I don't want to spoil anything, but it no longer becomes this interesting character study and just wants to give us increasingly outre set pieces. So the clever psychology that I was gripped by before rooted in real relationships, I thought real characters, we get launched into outlandish fantasy territory, the final 20 minutes, 
pack in a full film's worth of twists. Um, and that's where the movie did lose me. But as far as Kyogen being in prime creeper mode, what I liked about the movie is he keeps that at, at bay and plays sympathetic for much of the film. Um, very similar, I think, to how Matt Damon works in Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, but once the Kyogen really comes out, it comes out <laughs> and some people are just all there for every little bit of it. Yeah, I get why people want to talk about it and you gasp about it and you giggle about it. But at the end of the film, it didn't leave me with as much as I thought it could have if it had stayed a little more grounded in reality. All that being said, check it out just on the chance you might be in the enthused camp because you do have folks on that other side who think this is one of the best of the year. That's way too rational and reasonable a take. Sorry. Thanks for nothing, Josh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Saltburn, my notes tell me, is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and you are on one of the polls, please do write in and tell Josh how he's wrong. Feedback at filmspotting.com. I'm wrong. I'm wrong Later for everybody show. this way. See how I did that? That's Adam? right. I just, I That's just right. to like, I like to keep everyone unhappy. <laughs> we'll talk Ridley Scott's Napoleon, along with a couple of notable films getting more limited releases that are worth tracking down. We will have poll results with some listeners making their picks for the single essential Hayao Miyazaki movie. The latest from the master Japanese animator comes to theaters this weekend, The Boy and the Heron. I know you can recommend that film even more than Saltburn. We'll just leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. But that's safe to say at this point. Let's get started with Poor Things, the latest from director Yorgos Lanthimos. He of The Lobster, Dogtooth, and most recently, the Oscar winning The Favorite. Poor Things reunites him with favorite actor Emma Stone. Stone plays Bella Baxter, a Victorian era woman who has been brought back to life, not exactly quite back to her former self, however, by her guardian, an eccentric scientist played by Willem Dafoe. Curious to experience the world, Bella runs off with Mark Ruffalo's Duncan Wetterburn. I, I had forgotten that was his character's name, Wetterburn. Um, in, you know, the same spirit, I guess we'd call him maybe a rake, Adam. is Does anyone call him a rake in the film at some point? No, no, I like a fop better. A fop. Okay, we could go with that. Here they are in a scene that shows Bella's appetite for knowledge and her unusual way of communicating it. These two are fighting and ideas are banging around in Bella's head and heart like lights in a storm. Oh. You're always reading now, Bella. You're losing some of your adorable way of speaking. I'm a changingable feast, as are all of we. Apparently, according to Emerson, disagreed with by Harry. Come, come, just come. You're in my son. What? So not quite as divisive of a film here in Poor Things, Adam. I think I've largely seen positive responses, but certainly a movie that could provoke such reactions. I think you have to come out of the film feeling fairly strongly one way or the other. <laughs> Ironically, I don't know that I did, but as we've seen with Saltburn, uh, maybe I'm just too rational in these cases. Do you have a stronger, more spirited opinion to give us when it comes to poor things? Yeah, I do have a very strong positive reaction to poor things, though it didn't necessarily start that way. It's a Lanthimos movie, so it will surprise no one to hear that the first 20 to 30 minutes I found so utterly bizarre and twisted, I never really got my my footing with it and kind of thought if there was someone out there who really dislikes his films and thought 
this was now just going to be almost a parody of Yorgos Lanthimos. I could see how this movie, or at least the beginning of this movie, might support such a theory. And yet, by the time Emma Stone's Bella character gets away from her father figure and gets on the road or gets out to sea eventually with Mark Ruffalo's character, that's really where I got on board with this movie. It's so formally inventive and fantastical, it makes the new Miyazaki seem almost prosaic by comparison. I thought of that too. Yeah, there's some Miyazaki uh, aesthetic touches here. The skies, the purplish skies, for Mm -hmm. sure. Some of the some of the ships even, or yeah. the, the boat looks against those backdrops with an Emma Stone performance that simultaneously grounds it and elevates it. Josh, at this point, I'm not sure I expected to come away from any movie being surprised by how smart and how playful a Stone performance could be, but that's what happened here. Her command and dexterity with the dialogue as Bella gathers more information and intelligence, the humor that comes from that, her evolving physicality from those those awkward, stiff-legged, you know, baby steps to becoming this woman so comfortable in her own skin that her very being is a challenge to the patriarchy. There's just a theatricality to it, physically, verbally, that I think in the hands of a less skilled performer could come off as so forced and could be so easily dismissed, but she just brings this bravado, this audacity, this confidence to it that I think really is what propelled me through this, in addition to the sheer imagination of it. Yeah, for me, it's that sheer imagination that, you know, lands me on the side of recommending the film, uh, again, like Saltburn, in hopes that folks will see it and like it even more than I did, which it sounds like you did. But mm-hmm. in terms of my experience with the film, I had the opposite one. <laughs> I was I was on board immediately. Maybe it, maybe it was that, you know, Frankenstein lab experimental setting, which I'm a sucker for already. And, and any movie that nods to like the James Whale Frankenstein, although cleverly, those sequences shot in color. I think that was a wise choice on Lanthimos's part, not black and white like other parts of the film are. I'm in for all that stuff, right? Um, but it did eventually wear me out where by the end I was thinking, you know, maybe on another day I would have laughed my way through this entire thing. But but now I, I'm just kind of exhausted. I, I think this is an example, Adam. I, I would not say it's a parody of Lanthimos. I think it's Lanthimos getting to do whatever he wants after the favorite and the Oscar clout and, you know, the power that gave him. And so he chooses this novel. I'm assuming it's a bizarre novel from 92. I'm unfamiliar with it. Scottish author Alistair Gray wrote this, that it's based on and just indulged in whatever, you know, macabre whim, dark comic impulse that that material inspired. The, the screenplay here is actually by Tony McNamara. But Lanthimos is absolutely the guiding creative force. Though Stone, to your point, you know, I think she can be credited equally for what this film is mm-hmm. doing. And I noted her partnership with Lanthimos in The Favorite. I, she's a producer here. And so I think both of them are just completely unrestrained. And sometimes that can result in the greatest art of someone's career. Sometimes it results in a parody of themselves. For me, this is somewhere in between. It's absolutely pure artistic expression. It's free from any commercial concerns. Stone, to your point, is gleefully smashing any preconceived notions of her persona. She already did that to a degree in The Favorite, I think, but this is way beyond. And Mm -hmm. to your point about the creativity, 
they're being supported, the two of them, by costume design, art direction, production design that is so unfettered and so incredible that it absolutely, I, I could keep looking at this movie even as I was getting exhausted by what it was doing at the same time. Um, it, those interludes, breaks between the sections, which are almost these tableaus, these black and white moving paintings with stone at the center. I wish those had been on screen longer just to gaze at. I mean, the artistry on display, this is a signature achievement. And as I said, just utterly exhausting. And I'm afraid I have to say eventually Stone's performance fell in that category for me as well. I think you're, everything you described is right. This is so technically impressive. The degree of difficulty that she is trying to pull off, I can admire, but it did eventually begin to become more about the lengths of outrageousness that she could perform. I think it takes a turn away from that at the end, but there's a long middle section where it's mostly about whatever outrageous thing Bella can do. And Stone just has her foot down, the pedal down on that so hard that it was in the same register as, you know, think about the fisheye lenses that are employed here. Or there's there's also, I would love to hear what your take was on this other aesthetic touch. It, it's sort of a peephole aspect ratio that uh, cinematographer Robbie Ryan employs. Those things became exhausting as well. And I felt like Stone's performance fell in that category too. But yeah, did you, what did you make of the the cinematography here? And, and not only the color changes in black and white, but these aspect ratios, the fisheye lens, it was just so much. It's a lot. I'm on board with the indulgence in this case. I wasn't so on board with the fisheye here, which is ironic because I'm pretty sure I praised it, how it was employed in The Favorite. Yeah, I liked it there and too. And here, maybe I'm conflating the, the two different techniques you're talking about, but even with The Fisheye, my sense here watching it was that it was almost meant to convey like we're, we're peeking through a door and we're spying on something that maybe we shouldn't be seeing. And on one hand, I can make a case for that. And then on another hand, I'm not sure I can entirely justify it with this material. It, it definitely didn't add to my experience in a significant way. And actually, in contrast to the favorite, it felt more randomly and frequently yes, imposed here. I'd agree. And and that, that, if anything, is the one indulgence that I found a little bit exhaustive about the film. And I know... Ultimately, you are praising Stone's performance, even if it wore you out, too. But that language you're using, I get it. The degree of difficulty or the riskiness, the the technical nature of it. She is a very precise actress. And yet to still have that come through again, this speaks to the theatricality of it, I think to have that precision come through, but for it never to feel for me cold or ever to smother that that humanity that that never happened for me with this character she was constantly a delight to me and an amusing one at that and then add to it mark ruffalo oh an no, actor, he's just he's just wonderful <laughs> an actor i somehow josh underestimated because i guess i didn't know that he was capable of this even though I probably should be aware of that. And I'm, I'm vaguely aware of his Stella Adler observatory training. So you would think he could play a capital C character like this. And yet I'm not sure I can remember a time when he's done it. 
the pitch couldn't be more perfect here with this Duncan Wedderburn character. Everything that that rake, that cad says is such a devilish delight. And the more ridiculous he's rendered, the more hilarious and fun he is. I loved every moment he was on screen and they were on screen together. I completely agree with you on his performance. I'm looking through his credits now. And, um, you know, the one that immediately came to mind, it's in a much calmer register, but he definitely has some dry humor um, as Bruce Banner at, in the Avengers films. But but this is, you know, way degrees above yes. this. Maybe something like Ryan Johnson, the brothers Bloom, you know, Ryan Johnson's early film is the closest. Yeah. He does not work with this sort of material. And but I hope he does. He, he should do more of it because he was, aside from the art direction and those aesthetic elements, probably my favorite part of the film. Poor things currently out in limited release. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it when you get a chance to see it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And now for something completely different, Todd Haynes, May, December. Though, speaking of precise technical performances, it's currently available exclusively on Netflix. Haynes' longtime collaborator Julianne Moore plays Gracie, who became tabloid infamous two decades earlier when, as a 36-year-old, she was caught and convicted of raping a 13-year-old boy. Gracie and the boy, Joe, remained a couple, and when we meet them in the movie, they've been married for more than 20 years and have three children together, the youngest of whom, twins, are just about to graduate from high school. Joe is played by Charles Melton. If this story sounds familiar, yeah, it's loosely based on the story of Mary Kay Letourneau, who in the 90s spent time in prison for raping a 12-year-old student. The two later married and had kids together. Complicating matters for Gracie and Joe and their family is the arrival of Natalie Portman's Elizabeth, an actress who is preparing to play Gracie in a film. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You are so sweet. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for doing this. It's so generous. Well, I want you to tell the story right, don't I? We're taller. You look taller on television, but we're basically the same size. I'm basically the same. Feels like things just settled down, and now y'all are making a movie. It's a very complex and human story. I think it's hard to trust that you're going to represent Gracie as she was. I'm going to try. Now, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, and it's just about timing, but I've seen it pop up in my Twitter feed a few times. Josh, Sam Adams over at Slate has written an article about Natalie Portman where, just based on the headline, I know that he suggests that Natalie Portman is at her best, it seems, when she's playing bad actresses, or at least playing actresses, that there's something about that that calculation in her performances that actually really thrives when there's this meta element at play. I'm not going to ask you to litigate Natalie Portman's entire career and how good she is. I just want to know how good you think she is here and how good you think May December is. I'm going to have to read that because it seems to be tapping into an ambivalence I've had about her across her and career I have had too. as I well. All I can tell you is that f- this is going to be tricky talking about May, December right now, because all I want to do is talk about the performances in May, mm-hmm. December. And next week we will be hashing out our Chicago Film Critics Association ballot, mostly spending time on performances of the year. So I don't want to spoil any of that discussion. I'll just say, um, from my mind, this is part, one of Portman's best. That I've seen. Um, this is possibly one of Julianne Moore's best, which is saying something even greater, I think. And then you have Charles Melton as Joe, this young husband on par with the two of them in the same film. You Halfway in, you realize, 
how good they are. And then it starts to dawn on you. Um, is this relative kid like stealing this movie from Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman? So these three performances are the reason to see this film. It was one, I think I mentioned on one of our previews this year, I was confused um, why Haynes was making it, even though it's a dramatization of that story, that real life story. I, I didn't quite understand it. I'm still wrestling with that, to be honest with you, even though I'll be upfront. This is circling my top 10 list. So it's one of these strange experiences where it's, it was that powerful of a watching of a watch for me. Yet I have these nagging things about, well, should we be making a movie of this? Should we be enjoying as much as I enjoyed so much of this movie is the word Adam is delicious. So much of this movie is delicious, including those performances. And then I stop and say, well, this, a story like this, I shouldn't, be reacting this way. And of course, I know you're waiting to say it. That's the point, right? I think the final scene, which we won't spoil, um, hammers that home in a very amusing way and mm-hmm. kind of pinned me to the board and made me ask, um, why was I enjoying so much of this movie? And and sometimes I will have issues with films. Uh, you know, it's a case for me of the pot calling the kettle black, um, you know, a movie aiming at just pinning down the audience. I think mm. this is doing something a little more delicate, a it little is. more interesting. <laughs> it definitely and is. And that's Josh. why it's circling my top 10. Um but yeah, I'm going to save I'm going to save any more observations about those performances till next week, I think. Yeah, well now I want to save some of my observations to counter your argument because this movie for me is also circling my top 10 and I hope listeners will indulge us a little bit not only is this a matter of quantity? We're talking about more movies than we ever talk about typically on a show, but also of quality, at least for me with these first two movies we're getting into. They are both contenders for my top 10. And not only do we have that top 10 show, but we have, like you said, the performances show next week prior to that. And then in January, we have our rap party. So some of these movies and some of these different moments and performances could be talked about on three different occasions in detail. And I know we do want to save some of our best material. I'll say that I don't think it's just one of her best. I think it's definitely Natalie Portman's best performance. I think there are here at least two or three scene of the year contenders. Yes. And I'm with you that there are multiple performances that are among the best of the year, including we don't do this category Maybe we did at one point many years ago, but we've also got the scene stealer of the year in Corey Michael Smith, who shows up, I think, in just two scenes, maybe three in this movie. I don't think Melton will make the cut for my supporting actor top five, though I definitely am considering him. But I will say that the vulnerability he brings and here I'll say the physicality, too. There's this choice he makes with Joe's walk. Yes, that I was so struck by where it's just a little hunched over yes, and it's a little too mannered and it's almost as if he's being ushered forward. I don't want to put too obvious a read on it because I don't think there's anything obvious about this performance, but it's almost as if he's always being pulled forward by Gracie, whether she's around or not. And he's not, and and there's, there's a part that's against his will to some of this. At least that's the implication. And he's, he's trying to my mind to not take up, too much space. He's always mm-hmm. trying to be there, but not be there too much, um, right. which is, you know, a different way of, of describing the, the, the physical slash psychological presence that he holds in their relationship. Yeah. And I don't think the movie 
again, here is obvious in trying to make him seem boy-like as if he is somehow stunted. And yet there are some of these psychological elements that, that suggest that that might be the case. There's also in this film, Josh, I'm going to say the best single line of the year. And I'm not going to spoil it because I think it'll come up when I'm talking about performances next week. In this case, the line is so great, not just because of the line itself, as good and honest as it is. It's more about the line reading. I honestly haven't shaken it. Once a day, it comes late in the film. I'll tell you off air, Josh, ahead of next week, but it's a Natalie I've Portman got a guess. line. You, you have to know it. I, I do know other people have brought it up, so it shouldn't be too mysterious. But once a day since seeing this movie, Josh, I'm not kidding. I think about that line. I think about how it could have been delivered, all the different inflections and the, the tones that you could have added to it, all the different things you could have tried to suggest with it. And not one of those imaginary alternate takes comes anywhere close to matching the incisive, pragmatic perfection of the one we get. I, I think it's amazing. And it's just, it's a single line, like eight words. And it's just so good. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I know which one it is. Although um, I could also have guessed one that more delivers late in the film as well that I, I would put right up there for the same reasons you said. Um, it, it, it's it's just like this needle that is slipped in rather than punctured when she says it to someone. And they're both operating at such a high level and then even in, at a higher level when they're together. Every scene with these two on the screen is electric. And let me just know one thing, you know, beyond the performances, and this has to do with Haynes, who's, you know, of the visual style he brings to this, because in, in some ways... It's an aspect of the movie that you could forget or overlooked, but this is another scene of the two of them. He often has them framed parallel, facing mm -hmm. the camera, frequently looking at the camera because it's taking the right. place of a mirror, right? Then he plays with this device in a scene where they're with Gracie's daughter trying on dresses, and you realize we're watching them in the reflection of a giant mirror mm -hmm. in this dressing yeah. room, right? So we see the two of them Remember at the center of the screen. Two or three scene of the year candidates, Josh. Okay, should I stop? Should I stop? <laughs> I mean, I'd like you to, but you don't have to. Okay, I, I, I'll just say That's this. That's the scene of the movie for me. When, it's the scene of the movie. Oh, I see, I've got, I've got another one also involves a mirror, but I'll just say, I won't describe it, but I will say when you're watching the movie, just just notice what's going on on the right side of yes. the frame that's it. as well. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to the level of just visual sophistication that is going on in a movie that's nevertheless dominated by three incredible performances. There is more. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more. There's more I could say to to dig in a little bit and try to reassure you further that I don't think this is just a case where Haynes, maybe like some other filmmakers with this material or similar material, is taking easy shots at anyone. I do think this movie is way more layered and nuanced and complex than that. But you know what? Let's save it because one way or another, this movie is going to come up again over the next few weeks. May, December is out now exclusively on Netflix. If you see it and you definitely should, and you agree or disagree with us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We've got more reviews coming up, including thoughts on Napoleon. But first, a couple of ways you can help the show. If you're a regular listener, or even if you're still getting to know us, maybe take a minute and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Every new rating, every review helps us reach new listeners. 
I love that I get to read this part. Thanks to Apple Podcast listeners Roger Bang, To-Do List 2020 in Mexico, Jill Lloyd Flanagan, Nicola Starr, and Dickwad22. I love his work for their recent reviews. Wow. Now, right. let me point out, Adam, Nicola Starr, last name is uh-huh. S-T-A-R-R. So if you yes. were on the fence about it, that should convince you, yes, they have all starred in the same adult film. <laughs> Roger Bang titled his review, It's a Movie Podcast, Sending Us Love from Norway. Lots of exclamation points there. To-Do List 2020 names us the best film podcast available. Nicola Starr writes, the show reminds me why I love movies and the people who care about them. Jill enjoys our thoughtful conversations, but suggests that maybe poll feedback doesn't need to be so exhaustive. And what's hilarious about this, Josh, is looking over these documents earlier today, I always start with the feedback or segment two portion first uh-huh. and then go back and look at this part. So when I was going through the listener feedback that our esteemed producer, Sam Van Halgren had chosen, I thought, well, I thought of Jill and I thought, you know what? Jill's going to think this is at least three comments heavy and I'm not cutting a single one of them. Sorry, Jill. And, and Jill, I should apologize of everyone we listed Jill Lloyd Flanagan. I don't think she had anything to do with that adult film at all. No, it was the rest no. of them. It was all the rest of them. Maybe. I mean, could be the director. You never know. Dick Wad says of us, these are your cool film professors. We'll take it. Thank you to everyone who wrote a review or gave us a rating. Another way to support us, join the Film Spotting family. You get to listen early and ad free. You get our weekly newsletter, Sam. Highlights our 50s madness movie of the week. We've gone from Anatomy of a Murder to William Wyler's Ben-Hur and Mikhail Kalatazov's The Cranes Are Flying. Gotten some great feedback. It's awesome to see the film spotting community actually partaking in this as we'd hoped and seeing these films and sharing some thoughts with us. You also, as a family member, get monthly bonus shows in November. We just recently shared our quarterly film spotting advisory board meeting, highlighted our 2024 marathon candidates, among other content. Josh, and I thought briefly I would say here for the people who don't get access to this content currently, we hope you'll sign up and become a Film Spotting family member. We are actually, by the time you hear this, you're going to have found in your feed a little taste of some of the recent bonus content that we've shared. But I do think we need to make time on an upcoming regular episode to highlight the different candidates for 2024 marathons that we've thrown out there. We don't have to decide yet. We're still a month or so away or a couple months from embarking on these marathons. It will be in the new year, usually in February, but we could at least highlight what came up as far as topics, some good ones. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. And is it family members who get to vote, right? That's right. And help us to help us pick what's going to rise to the top. So a small perk, but a perk nonetheless, if you're part of the family, um, you can help influence the programming that way. That's right. Exclusive voting rights. So if you are an FAB member, a bonus member, a Family Plus member, you get to not only hear that episode, but you get to vote. And guess what? If you're just an archive member, which means you're a family member who has access to the archive instead of those additional bonus shows every month, you still get to vote. We still sent you the ballot. We gave you the topics, gave you some sample lineups, and every vote does matter. We thank everyone who has participated so far. And we thank everyone who is a Film Spotting family member. You can learn more at filmspottingfamily.com. Generals gathered in their masses. Move along now. Those in power only see me as a brute, unfit for higher office. Just like witches at black masses. 
but I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. That's Joaquin Phoenix in Ridley Scott's Napoleon, which opened Thanksgiving week. The film tracks a rise to power that begins during the French Revolution, sees Napoleon woo and wed the aristocratic widow Josephine de Beauharnais, crown himself emperor of France, and later die in exile. Josephine is played by Vanessa Kirby. So, Adam, Napoleon the movie is probably more Ridley Scott's milieu than Phoenix's. Scott has made sweeping historical films before, the Oscar-winning Gladiator, of course, but also 2005's Kingdom of Heaven, a 2010 Robin Hood with Russell Crowe, and the 2014 biblical epic Exodus, Gods and Kings. Phoenix hasn't really done anything like this, except maybe the last time he worked with Scott in Gladiator. What did you make of them? working on this material together. I was disappointed, sadly. I guess that's how I'll sum it up, Josh. The defenses I've seen of Napoleon on Letterboxd and Twitter all revolve around it being hilarious, or at least surprisingly comic, and and more than that, subversively so. The way it openly ridicules the common or conventional great man narrative by dramatizing his military intelligence and accomplishments, but also portraying him as an overly ambitious, sniveling cuckold who doesn't command anyone's respect so much as compel it through force. He's an emperor who has to stand on a box to go eye to eye with the dead Egyptian pharaoh. And when he's not on the battlefield, he's mostly ineffectual and petulant. I get it, or I think I got it. I didn't find it particularly entertaining or amusing the way some others have. And what I haven't seen anyone defend at this point, and maybe such defenses are out there, I'll be curious for your take, Josh, is how completely hacked up and randomly episodic it all feels. I couldn't believe the number of times, especially early on, we'd get a little cursive title telling us what famous event we were about to witness play out. Sometimes it was only 45 seconds later, we'd cut to a new one. And it's not because the context seemed all that necessary or additive, but it just contributed to my sense that without it, we'd have no reason at all to care about what we were watching. It was like Napoleon's greatest historical hits and misses thrown together. Mm. Yeah, I think I would say there is a fair amount of that, but I do think Josephine's letters provided for me enough connective tissue um, because that really seems to be one of the major sources and in his letters to her actually. So it's, it's their missives back and forth that I think were more important to Scott and the film than documenting exactly where we were and when it, it was, it was almost, you know, as if it didn't matter so much that he was out fighting another battle somewhere, mostly. Um, it was more about what that meant for the two of them, what was happening when they were apart, and then how that affected their time back together. But I agree with you, that's not, you know, if the movie had had that cohesive vision um, throughout and sense of purpose throughout, I think it would have been a much stronger film. And I, I I did like it a bit more than you. I think it's well worth seeing, but it does often feel like two films. You've got this Scott battle app epic that is very vigorously made. I mean, I mean, if you're, you know, haven't tired of these sorts of big screen skirmishes and, you know, poetically beautiful bodies floating in lakes with blood, you're going to get that. Um, and it looks great. 
I guess. I don't know. I, I'm just where I'm at right now, maybe finding that a little bit tiring, but I was more intrigued by this notion of centering their relationship. And honestly, like by the end, I was wishing I'd gotten Sophia Coppola's Josephine. I think that would have been the more interesting film and done something a little different, which this movie wants to do at times. Um, and I think Vanessa Kirby is very good in trying to give us that level of characterization for someone who is more than just the wife back home. Phoenix, he's funny. He's very funny. I like that you called out the scene with the the mummy. That's one of my favorite bits um, when he has to go eye to eye. Um, that visual says so much. Doesn't even put his hat, the iconic hat, on top of the mummy's tomb, right? Um, I enjoyed that quite a bit. But that, too, got to be... Yeah, you got it. I think you got the joke. And then it started to be for what is this? Almost three hours, right? Mm -hmm. a, a kind of a you got it, we got it, we all know what you're doing experience. You know, maybe it, if it had committed to that vision even more and just dumped the Josephine stuff, dumped the battle stuff, then it would have been more like something like Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, which was absolutely meant to be a spoof of this um, sort of nobility, uh, great man to a degree. And costume period epic, really, mm -hmm. is what that was. Um, but of course, Kubrick had a laser vision for what he wanted to do. I don't know that that sense of purpose is here in Napoleon, unfortunately. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, you think the movie wants to do some of these things, including with that central relationship. But I'm not sure this movie, at least this version of it, really seems to know what it wants to do. And I'll go back. You said maybe it looks great. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're just tired of it at this point. Don't get me wrong. There are a few thrills to be had, of course. And Ridley Scott is someone who has made several films that I am a big fan of. But you think about the practicality of the approach of something like Gladiator and those action scenes or Black Hawk Down. And here the CGI is very noticeable. The the kind of imposed haze over everything. It doesn't offer, I'll use your word again, it doesn't offer that same sense of purpose that we've seen him work with before. Though maybe my my favorite aspect of the battle scenes is, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it, it was just like a little joke for me. Every time you watch a period piece, a historic battle, and you see the the character whose job it is, is just to like hit the snare drum as you're going into battle and you think, now why was that necessary? Did we really need someone playing the drums? And boy, that seems dangerous. There's at least two instances where we've watched that guy get utterly annihilated. It's like if you're the guy with the drum, you're the first one to die in in Napoleon. It's this is incredibly, incredibly gory. I, I think. I mean, this it's like Saving Private level of battlefield violence. I would say, um, and I take your point about the CGI haziness in a lot of the scenes, but that battle. I believe it's the Battle of Austerlitz. It's the one that takes place on this frozen mm -hmm. lake, and that's where I was talking about with the bodies in the water. Right. I mean, I. I may not need that sort of, you know, gory beautification necessarily, but it's still impressive in in its grimy glory. I think that is sure. where the Scott imagery you're talking about amidst this wintry mm -hmm. setting does come to the fore. Um, it's probably there more than in the many other battle scenes we get. Yeah. And, and the tough part, depending on your perspective and how much the other elements and the narrative cohesion or lack of it is apparent to you. By the time you get to some of those scenes, I was just utterly uninvested in what was occurring on screen. And I'll say, too, that I like how the movie uses Josephine's letters or his letters to her 
and that correspondence better in theory. In theory, I think it works the way it did for you, but the reliance on those letters and the voiceover to me actually just further added to the sense of incoherence. Hmm. It didn't seem like an inspired artistic choice, which I thought it could be. It was even more of a, this whole thing isn't really coming together. Let's throw the kitchen sink at it approach. We need to we need to ground everything and make sure people have some sense of what's going on in this film. So we're going to have him write these letters that lays it all out there. I think the the structural flaws of this film actually provide the biggest disservice to Vanessa Kirby, who otherwise is quite good in this film. But I don't think the movie, and again, maybe there is a four-hour version of this one like Kingdom of Heaven coming. I don't know. But I don't think this version is interested in her or their relationship beyond more or less how it serves to deflate him, which is that central joke the movie just keeps coming back to. Yeah, it'll be interesting to learn whether those letters were a structural element from the beginning in David Scarpa's screenplay or Mm -hmm. if they were a Band-Aid, as it seems you suspect. Um, That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, yeah. All right. I thought I thought it was an interesting way to to kind of frame his life. Um, but um, but yeah, definitely not one that dominated in a way that makes this feel like the year end top 10 contender that maybe some people expected. Napoleon is currently out in wide release. Love to hear your thoughts on it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We took some time away from the show around Thanksgiving, Josh. It is now time to prove that we were working that whole time, or at least watching a lot of stuff. The deadline we're trying to hit with all this frenzied watching is this Friday the 8th, the day many of you are probably hearing this. And actually, it's the 7th if we're being technical, because that's when our first round ballots are due. The 8th is when the nominees for the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards are announced, and then final round voting begins. So next week, With all of our votes in, we're going to do something a little bit different this year. The past couple of years, we've used this show as the occasion to hash out what we might vote for. In this case, we'll have voted, and we can tell each other how wrong the other one was. We are going to share our favorite performances of the year that's supporting and lead actor and actress. And then the following week, somehow, can it be here already? We are going to record our top 10 of 2023 with Michael and Mariah. So... Wait a minute. You've got me in a panic, even more of a panic. Chicago Film Critics Association, the final ballots yes. open on the 8th. When are those due? Mm-hmm. Do you know offhand? Do, do I at least have the yeah, weekend? I think it's, you have the weekend. It's Monday or Tuesday. Okay, okay. Whew. I was a little nervous yeah, there. Monday or Tuesday <laughs> okay. to get your final Not much better. viewing in. Not much better, but I can squeeze in a couple more titles. One of the films we're going to get to in a little bit is Finnish director Aki Karasmaki's excellent Fallen Leaves. Before we get to that, we have a little Karasmaki giveaway courtesy of our friends at Mubi. Josh, they've given us five copies of The World According to Aki Karasmaki and almost all the dogs of Aki Karasmaki. The World According to is a companion book featuring quotes from the director on life, filmmaking, philosophy, and more alongside film stills. It has an introduction from friend of the show, great critic Amy Nicholson. And almost all the dogs of is what you think it might be. It's a postcard pack of artist Nina Slako Blom's paintings of the many dogs throughout Karasmaki's filmography. Oh, wow. These both sound great. I just found I my- I really want to share them. Found my stocking stuffers for my daughters. Yeah. I think we're going to hold back and rolling in a giveaway three each. Please. Because we need to keep, <laughs> keep a couple for ourselves. If you want a chance to get one of these items, you want your own stocking stuffer, all you have to do, send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net, 
The subject will make it easy. Aki giveaway. That's A-K-I. I'm not going to make you spell Karismaki. No. Just A-K-I giveaway. And in the body, because Karismaki was one of the filmmakers featured in our Nordic Cinema Marathon a few years back, you can either tell us a favorite Karismaki film. Maybe you've seen several or all of them and you have a clear winner. Or just tell us a favorite film that you were introduced to as part of a film spotting marathon. Either one will enter you and we will pick the winner at random and announce it on next week's show. So we're going to give you a hard deadline here to get your entries in Tuesday, December 12th, 5 p.m. Central Time is your deadline to enter the Aki giveaway. Again, that's feedback at filmspotting.net. Quick note about the newest pairing on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. If you're a little disappointed that we're not giving full attention to the boy and the heron while they have got you covered. They are going to pair Hayao Miyazaki's new film with his 2001 breakthrough, Spirited Away. I, I'm holding off on listening to this one, Adam, until I've done all my Boy in the Heron processing myself. But if others are ready to jump in, or if you've seen it after it has opened this weekend, wide, give the next picture show a listen. Episodes come out every Tuesday, and you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Totoro came back, Dad. I saw him. We saw a cat bus, too. What? It was huge. With eyes like this. It was great. It was great. <laughs> I saw Totoro. I saw him. Did Film Spotting Nation save the cat bus, Josh? Oh, they better have. That's the question. <laughs> We're going to keep the Miyazaki talk going. Time for some poll results. A couple of weeks back in anticipation of the release of Miyazaki's Boy and the Heron, we asked you, well, actually, it was more of a statement than a question by our producer, Sam. Sorry, you can only keep one Miyazaki. That was the only prompt we gave you. The options we gave you were Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, or other, you could pick any other title from the Master's Catalog. How did it come out, Josh? Well, other, not in last place, which when that happens, I think usually speaks to the richness of those other options. Howl's Moving Castle actually came in last with 6%. Other got 8%. Princess Mononoke received 16% of the vote. Uh, poor Catbus, no longer with us. My neighbor Totoro, 30%. Spirited Away was the winner here with 40% of the vote. Very close between those two, as we expected. Jeremy Ryan Balliston writes in, is there any point in having kids if this happened? If if all of these but one were destroyed, Jeremy wonders, why even bother? <laughs> as long as there's one, Jeremy, you can show them the one. Here's Zach in Chicago. We're only my kids to vote. Totoro would take this in a happy cat bus victory lap. But I've never been able to shake the spell spirited away cast upon me after my first viewing. If Totoro has a healthy dose of dream logic for six-year-olds, Spirited Away is a waking dream for my adult self. I like that, Duncan in Royal Oak, Michigan. If this was favorite or even best Miyazaki, it would be a no-brainer. Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite movies of all time. But Sam's phrasing stopped me in my tracks. I can only keep one? I have a two-year-old daughter who I am chomping at the bit to show Kiki's delivery service in My Neighbor Totoro. And it turns out that I'd rather share one of those films with her than keep my favorite movie. And while I adore Kiki, my neighbor Totoro is an all-time great. So that's where I put my vote. Excellent poll question with no wrong answer. 
Duncan's right there. Here's Edwin Rojas. My Neighbor Totoro was my introduction to Miyazaki in Japanese animation when my dad bought it for me and my brother when we were kids. We were enchanted, and it's one of our bonds talking about how much we love that movie. Every time I watch it, I'm transported to that child with his little brother being immersed in this world and feeling like I was living it. I still think I can find Totoro in the forest. (laughs) Here's Richard Holland. While tempted to vote other and enter a start a pitchforks and torches uprising to destroy the incinerator, which is the only right answer here, I decided to play along and vote for the obvious choice, Totoro. Before these were officially released in the U.S., I found a copyright dubious collection of all Miyazaki's movies on a popular auction site, and my children were raised on all these incredible films. I challenge you to find a better portrayal of children and how they view the world than the one offered by this charming masterpiece of a movie. Satsuki and May, their wonder, sadness, frustration, worries, and determination are so real, it's as if you know them and can imagine the adults they'll grow into. All of these films are amazing, but Totoro offers something truly unique that made it the easiest full choice ever. Well said, Richard. And I endorse stealing when it's bread for your children or Miyazaki movies for your children. That's all okay with me. Mike Horky here. My vote is for Miyazaki's most important and most beautiful film, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. His searing critique of the weaponized environmental destruction of our planet, mixed with some truly inspired action and world building, makes this a slam dunk. And that's without mentioning Teto, maybe the cutest creature Miyazaki has ever put to screen. Here's Steven. Only one film, one character, is the epitome of power, of goodness, of kindness, of leading by love when everyone around them leads by fear, of caregiving, of generosity, of bravery, of courage of sacrifice, of a pure heart, and that is Nausicaa. Don't deny the world a princess who is everything this broken world needs. Here's a comment from Beth. Gotta vote other and write in Kiki's delivery service. It was a staple of my kids' childhoods, and my daughter went as Kiki for Halloween the first year she wanted to be anything other than a princess. Kiki will forever have a place in my heart. Mine as well, Beth. Wade McCormick says three of my top four are here, Mononoke, Spirited, and Totoro. But my number one Miyazaki is The Wind Rises, which is a great choice. Wow. All right. One last comment. This one's from Emma. Spirited Away is Apex Anime. Princess Mononoke rips. And of course, Totoro is a perfect movie. So I naturally chose to save Castle of Cagliostro. My introduction to Miyazaki was this pre-Ghibli crackerjack action comedy. Even directing the equivalent of a Bond sequel, Miyazaki makes this film his own, establishing stylistic and visual techniques that would define his future films. This is one of the only films that I've ever hunted down an import copy of and bought the DVD before I even had a player. In closing, subs not dubs. Fully aligned with you there, Emma. Thank you, Emma, and everyone else who wrote in with your great feedback. Our new poll asks you to name, ready or not, your film of the year. Yes, you still have a lot to see. We still have a lot to see. But if you've been staying on top of things at all, it's pretty much a guarantee that you have seen something great because this has been, it turns out, a pretty great year for cinema. I have way too many movies competing for my top 10. Currently, it was hard to whittle this down to the best, what is it, seven options to give you, Josh, but this is what we've come up with. Across the Spider-Verse, Asteroid City, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, and we will offer the option of other. And yeah, to your point, Adam, I feel like this was a very good year, and then all of these movies came barreling out or we got early access to in the last month and a half that made it a great year. But for this poll's purposes, we did want to offer options that most people have had a chance to see. 
This would have been my guess, and I just looked at the poll results as they currently stand for the first time. Not surprisingly, Other is in the lead. Speaking to the richness yeah, there you go. of the movie offerings this year, can't wait to get into some of that feedback and see what other films people are hoisting up there as the best film of the year. You can vote and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. We'll share results and your comments on our top 10 films of 2023 show in a couple of weeks. في الفيلم هذا باش نحاول نحكي حكيت بنت الفا In this film I will try to tell the story of Ulfa's four daughters. That's director Kauter Benania in the trailer for her new film Four Daughters. Four Daughters won the best documentary prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival, also at this year's Chicago International Film Festival. Ania tells the story of Ulfa's four daughters in an unusual way. She hired actresses to play the parts of Ulfa's two eldest daughters, who've been missing since 2016. This meta-narrative stuff, of course, Josh, very much my jam, but first order of business is to decide whether or not Four Daughters is eligible for the golden brick, even though... Ben Ania has been making films for about a decade, including a 2020 film, The Man Who Sold His Skin, which was nominated for a Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. And second, we then have to decide whether or not we're nominating it. I'm going to put you on the spot first. Hmm. I mean, the only box it doesn't check is the fact that Ania has made so many films. Previously, I haven't seen any of them. Despite the Oscar nomination, I was unfamiliar with her name as a filmmaker. That's probably to my shame, but that is sort of a qualification too for us is if it is a filmmaker mm -hmm. who is new to us. Brand new. And yeah, you know, again, it's our fault, but that's the case here. So I think just for the sake of bringing more attention to this very wonderful movie, we should give it a nod and then we can hash out, you know, where it falls in the ranking and for the ultimate award um, down the road. This is a pretty incredible experiment. I very much think of it along the lines of, I would call them experimental therapy docs. And the masterwork of this is one, it's been a while now, The Act of Killing. But I was, I would also put um, very, very, very good films like Dick Johnson is Dead or the more recent Procession in this category. And they all go back in a way, Adam, to Abbas Kiarostami's close-up, right? This, this mixing Absolutely. of fiction, nonfiction, employing real-world people to play themselves or other characters and try to get at... It isn't really so much here getting at some sort of truth. It's interesting to me how the main figure, Olfa herself, I felt is constantly trying to dodge any sort of, not any sort of truth, certain truths, particularly truths that come home to her. And there's a sadness for me in this documentary when the daughters are hoping the, the process will go there and it's clear it's not going to because she's only going to, she's willingly participating in this, but she's only going to reveal so much. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic at play. For me, the more avant-garde this became, the more interesting it was because there are a lot of traditional on-camera interviews and then interspersed with these recreations of scenes from the family's past. But think about a moment where... Um, Hind Sabri, who is the actor playing Ulfa, okay, the mother, we're watching her speak to herself in character as Ulfa to a mirror. At this point, she's discussing her decision to leave her husband at a certain point. And then at the same time, we hear the actual Ulfa saying those same words. So there, there are just intriguing layers of distance mm -hmm. and identity going on. Um, Four Daughters does that on occasion. Mostly it's 
more straightforward, but those those were like the really intellectually stimulating elements of the movie for me. Yeah, I'm with you there. Another movie we could point to in terms of experimental therapy of a different variety, but we'll go back to another golden brick winner, The Arbor is Oh yeah, a right, film right. I thought about a lot in relation to this one. And it's funny, we could we could spend a lot of time on this and I don't necessarily want to at this point, but I didn't feel that way about Olfa in terms of dodging things. Huh. I actually thought if anything her issue was, and this is what makes her a fascinating character, is she's so willing to express exactly what she's feeling and and occasionally definitely to be introspective, but she always wants to share how she feels, even if she's aware of the apparent hypocrisy, that it's not that she's she's trying to hide from anything. I almost wish she hid more hmm. a little bit because she's she's always she's always putting herself in a position, I think, to be to be judged, but she just doesn't really care. That's how I viewed it. And there's a line in the film I didn't write down, so this will be bad paraphrasing here, but there's a moment where someone calls her out. Actually, I think it's the moment where she's commenting on the fact that she doesn't want to wear, even wearing it in the moment for the scene they're reenacting, she is wearing a hijab. But she says she can't even look at herself in the mirror wearing it. But then in the next breath expresses to her daughter that she really loves it when her daughter wears it. Yeah. That yeah. she wants to keep her daughter in that in that very more traditional box and wants her to be seen as pure and innocent and and definitely not defiled in any way. And that is highly contradictory, obviously. And the daughter calls her out on it. She yes. says, Yeah, but that's that's the way it is. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. Right. So she she's constantly putting herself in in those really interesting interesting spots, those conundrums that she presents. Yeah, you're right. Contradictory is a better word to use. Hiding was the wrong one because she's, again, willingly engaged in this project and doesn't deny those contradictions at all. Um, I think for me, the difference of experience I had, and this is not to say it's a fault of the film, is that the daughters particularly the two younger daughters seem to be engaging this to to push through, this is the therapy element, to some sort of breakthrough. And there is a wall Ulfa will come up against and not That's go fair. beyond, right? She can and only so go so she can, far. Which, is, right. which again is not, I, I'm not, this isn't so much a critique. It's just more of an observation that um, in comparison to some of those other therapeutic experimental documentaries where we, you see that sense of catharsis, I think, you know, Dick Johnson is dead. Absolutely. Procession features that as well. Um, And maybe it's not fair to hold those up as models to this film, that this film wants to do something differently. I just got the sense the younger daughters wanted it to be that. And so it was a bit saddening to see Ulfa, you know, it may not be something she'll be ever be able to reconcile within herself. And seeing that is fascinating alone. Yeah, she still opens herself up in ways that I think might be very surprising to people listening to this conversation. I do have to say, having talked about May, December in the first segment, I just watched this film earlier today as we're recording. And I was thinking about May, December and what I was going to say about it on the show. What a fascinating, (laughs) completely unintentional, fascinating pairing these two movies are. I mean, this movie isn't focused on the experience of the actress who's playing Olfa in those reenactments, the way May, December is obviously preoccupied with Portman's character largely, 
but it is a major part of this movie, and it's how we're introduced to these characters. That's the opening of the film. She's in the makeup chair talking about how nervous she is to meet the woman that she's playing. And then when they do meet, she is like Portman's Elizabeth, focused on trying to understand Ulfa's emotions yeah, and her yeah. motivations. <laughs> she mimics, as you noted, she mimics her movements and her inflections. There's so many shots in both films utilizing reflections on maybe one or two occasions here without a mirror even where they're they're just looking at each other they're providing the mirror image to each other and there's even a line josh i couldn't believe it late in this movie where one of the sisters says it's not because she's a bad person that's just the way things are (laughs) which made me think of a certain line from may december this movie is i think one that naturally falls under that umbrella of ecstatic truth documentaries because it relies upon revelation via artifice. And I think revelation, I'm going to use it here like lowercase r, revealing in terms of information and feelings that might be difficult to express otherwise. And uppercase r, where information and feelings are revealed that would otherwise maybe be impossible to express. And I think one of those moments is the one where Ulfa gets so caught up in a scene. She's within the scene acting with her two youngest daughters who are really her two youngest daughters. And then the two actresses playing her older missing daughters and the daughter, the oldest daughter so inhabits the character. Actually, it might be the second oldest, but one of the daughters so inhabits the character she's playing the actual daughter that they all realize that Ulfa kind of stops acting in that moment. She stops playing the role of herself and is just reacting in the moment as herself. Again, speaks to the different layers that are at play in this movie. But that's that's one of those moments that that really is striking in Four Daughters. Yeah, the, the May-December stuff is interesting. It, it all tracks for me, too. I think it's been a couple of weeks since I saw Four Daughters. So when I when I watched May-December, it, it wasn't fresh in my mind. But I do like, I like those comparisons. That makes a lot of sense. How do you feel about the way... I do want to get into this because I don't know if we'll get another chance to talk about this movie. We'll see what happens with Brick nominations, Josh. But how did you feel about the way the director chose to structure the story? And what I mean is watching it for a good part of its runtime, I was thinking, what's so remarkable about this woman and her daughters? Why were they chosen? Why are we watching their story? What's unique about this mother and these daughters who have run off. And then is that in fact the point that we're learning about shame, which I think this movie is absolutely an exploration of. It's also an exploration about the oppression of women, of radicalization. Is that the point that we're learning about all of this, but how many other mothers and daughters in Tunisia alone could this movie be about? And maybe Benania just found especially open and willing participants. But then we get to a point in the movie where we learn we learn the truth. And and we didn't say it in the the setup here, but it's a known case. These daughters, there's some infamy around them as terrorists. And I'm not saying that I think the director did anything unethical or or even manipulative in withholding that information. It just strikes me that this information could have been introduced from the beginning and we'd understand that the film was going to try to uncover 
through the blurring of fiction and nonfiction, how they became radicalized, how they got to this point, rather than it unfolding more or less chronologically and it being a surprise. Now, I say it's a surprise. The only plot description I had read of this film and the only thing I had read about it prior was between light and darkness stands Ulfa, a Tunisian woman and the mother of four daughters. One day, her two older daughters disappear. Filmmaker Kauter Benania invites professional actresses to fill in their absence. That's very different than this next one that I saw when you Google it, which is the story of Ulfa Hamruni, a Tunisian woman whose two eldest daughters were radicalized by Islamic extremists. If you don't read that or don't know about this case, you wouldn't necessarily know that watching three quarters or 80% of this film. I'm just curious what you thought about yeah. that decision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ulfa is a known um, figure. Uh, in you know in Tunisia because of this incident is what is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think it's really smart to structure it this way, and you you tapped into it. It makes it a story. Um, you know, this is less of a political story of radicalization, though those elements are absolutely here, and it's more of a personal story of a mother and her children. And I think that's important for let's say Western readers to be able to enter in on a human level rather than a political level. I don't know if that was the intentions behind the structuring, but I think that's the effect. And I think that is, that is crucial because then the elements you pointed to um, come to the fore, which I found to be even more important. This is, this revealed to me how it was more this toxic mix of sexual aggression and sexual repression have haunted Ulfa throughout her life, right? She talks about from when she was young, she talks about being a self-described tomboy. Here are more contradictions. She grew up as this self-described tomboy who had to defend her mother and sisters from men trying to force their way into their home because they did not have a father. She also talks about her own later sexual frankness when she was forced to marry a man and then takes on this lover. Um, But then you've already talked about her abusively puritanical attitude toward her daughter's Mm -hmm. bodies and their sexuality. Those are the elements that um, are maybe more universal for people to have experienced and struggled with than this radicalization element, which is at once related, but also its own piece that I think if you start there, you can send people off into their corners when it comes to a film like this and by starting somewhere else, um, again, it becomes this family story that Mm -hmm. is, that is more universal. So maybe not if it, if it was the intent, brilliant stroke, I think. Yeah. I think you said it well, and I know we're saying the same thing here, but I'll leave an underline more explicitly, not just directly related, the radicalization and those other elements directly connected. But I think you're right that, if it had started with or focused on the political aspect, that other part of it might have been lost, whereas now we can come into the film and people can see the more universal nature of the story and can actually see that connection more clearly. Yeah, you can trace the path. they otherwise would have. Yeah, that's it. That's Four Daughters. It's currently playing in limited release. All right, finally, let's get to one more title, Fallen Leaves, from Finnish director Aki Korosmaki. This is also currently playing in limited release. As we mentioned a little earlier, Korsmaki is someone we've devoted some time to a couple of years back as part of a Nordic cinema marathon. He has a distinctive deadpan tone that, in the handful of films we've seen anyway, 
Mostly he uses to explore social issues like illegal immigration and state bureaucracy. Fallen Leaves is Kurosaki's highest profile film since 2011's La Havre. It was a Palme d'Or nominee at Cannes this year and winner of the Fest Jury Prize. A love story of sorts, romantic comedy, I think you could say, uh, follows two <laughs> denizens of what is described in plot synopses as the harsher side of the welfare state. These are laborers working blue-collar jobs that are exploiting them in one way or another, I think you can say. Alma Poitstay's Ansa stock shelves at a grocery store. UC Fontanen's Halapa is a sandblaster. Now, Adam, I think we both agree that this one shouldn't get lost in the shuffle among these year-end releases. I don't know. It's not fair to put it in this context, but we've all already mentioned this phrase, circling our top 10 list. Mm-hmm. Was Fallen Leaves strong enough to be um, one of those films circling, or is it a little bit lower than that? Yeah, it's it's both in that it's a little bit lower, but it's not completely out of the picture i've got it i've got it there in the 15 to 20 range for sure and what we've said is is otherwise a very very good year and i think anybody who has seen other karasmaki films like us even if it's just la havre and the man without a past they're gonna feel right at home watching fallen leaves and it is a romantic film somehow it is a very sweet film though it's also a film that doesn't shy away from portraying some of, as those synopses say, the harsher side of this existence for these characters. And yet, I'll put it this way, there's a quotidian beauty to this film. I love the way Karasmaki mixes primary colors in clothing, in signs, in lights even in some scenes, especially some of the performance scenes. It's Karasmaki. If you know anything about him, you know there's going to be some good old-fashioned very old fashioned rock and roll, you know, kind of rockabilly style of music. You get those primary colors, the yellows and reds and blues juxtaposed with these duller greens and browns. And somehow it all mixes together to produce something that is quite lovely. And it's, it's set in modern day Helsinki and you recognize that. And it has some of our modern conveniences and inconveniences like soulless corporatism, but It also, of course, feels like it's straight out of the 1950s in terms of the production design and the cinematography that is inspired by some of these other films from the 1950s that are touchstones for Karasmaki and his work. So the fact that it just feels like so singularly a Karasmaki vision and you've got these two central characters that, like with any good melodrama, you're just rooting so hard for. Yeah. And you have to root so hard because, of course, it being a melodrama, you know that the universe is going to constantly conspire against them. Yes, which is largely what comprises the plot in ways that are heartbreaking and often kind of funny that you chuckle at without laughing at them. Uh, The performances, the two lead performances are they're very sensitive, but they're not emotional. These are stalwart figures who are just going to get up the next day. And do their best to get through whatever is coming at them. And of course, when you decide to throw a potential romantic relationship in that, well, then you know there's more chances of bad things coming your way. And that's largely what we see. I'm glad you mentioned the colors so much. It finally, this film in particular, it dawned on me that this sort of loneliness that the Kurosaki films I've seen that he deals in remind me reminded me so much in this movie because of the colors 
of Edward Hopper paintings because those have always struck me. They have this soft glow, you know, um, but they've struck me as comforting and cozy, even though they often depict solitary figures uh, who are clearly lonely. And that's the sensation I had watching this movie. It was sad and cozy at the same time. Um, Timo Salmanen is the cinematographer here. And when I wrote about the film, I described, you know, these greens and blues, they're on the right side of sickly, right? If they, if they had tilted a little bit one way, it would kind of have this awful icky neon sense, but they're just tilted enough where they're mm-hmm. somehow comforting while capturing that loneliness. And, and I think the use of music here, I'm not going to detail this because uh, one of our categories in our year-end rap party is musical moments. I have a strong contender from this. There's actually a couple that you could consider, um, but the music works similarly, right? In terms of it um, capturing the mood of desperation while also bringing a little sense of joy to mm-hmm. the moment. So it's just this incredible balance that's so uniquely to this filmmaker that is on, you know, really wonderful display here. And it has maybe the best loving, but also skewering scene of cinephiles ever walking out of a Godard film. <laughs> I can already see, I hope movie has already taken it and turned it into memes because that moment really could be employed uh-huh. quite a bit on social media, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. They they frequent a, a theater, which has, you know, a wonderful array of films that they're showing outside and posters. But yeah, that's a great bit, too. And, you know, that that theater provides such a great backdrop, literally, in terms of the colors, too, and some of the posters that we see and the lights from the theater. But also, how about that moment and that melodramatic convention of them just missing each other? He loses her number. Yeah spends days looking for her. She's kind of looking for him too and wondering what happened, why he hasn't reached out. She thought they really did make a connection. And she goes to the theater that he's been going to, hoping to find her again. That's where they went on a date. Of course, what do they see? If we're talking about the deadpan masters of cinema of all time, Karasmaki has his characters go to a Jim Jarmusch movie. The dead don't die, nonetheless. The dead dead don't die, and she says about it later, it was the funniest thing she's ever seen. (laughs) It's a very good movie. We like that here on this show. But when they keep missing each other, she shows up outside the theater, and there's just that that pile of cigarette butts Mm. that that reflects his his longing and that misconnection. The the amount of time he's had to spend there over yeah. the course of multiple days smoking cigarettes, hoping to meet. And then there she is standing right on top of those cigarettes, yet having no idea that he's out there looking for her. Yeah, it's just, it, it's one of those little light jokes that, again, captures the the sadness of the situation, but also sort of sort of makes you smile. Yeah, it does. Fallen Leaves currently playing in limited release. If you see it and it makes you smile, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can send any other comments about the show because that is our show. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us asking you to name your 2023 film of the year. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. You can also support the show by joining the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. You'll also get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. In those archives 
our top five Joaquin Phoenix performances. We did reshare that in our feed last week, along with a discussion of Ridley Scott's Alien. We have many Ridley Scott reviews going back all the way to 2007 in American Gangster, including that Sacred Cow review of Alien and Blade Runner. We actually haven't reviewed a Todd Haynes film since 2017's Wonderstruck. I think that made my top 10 yeah, of that it's year. It's really if you good. Go back, it's really good. If you go back to 2007, you can hear my conversation with Todd Haynes in a review of I'm Not There. You also can find in the archive reviews of every Yorgos Lanthimos film going back to Dogtooth, which did win the second annual Film Spotting Golden Brick Award. A lot of Dogtooth. A lot of Lanthimos, but a lot of Dogtooth, I would say, in Poor Things. Back in 2016, Josh, we did watch a couple of Kurosmaki films as part of that Nordic Cinema Marathon. You can check that out, along with some other great films by Roy Anderson and others. Filmspottingfamily.com. Streaming, you can see a new film starring Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke, and Kevin Bacon. They're in a thriller about a family getaway that takes an ominous turn. They always do. It's on Netflix leave the world behind poor things out limited Miyazaki's the boy and the heron wide go see that on a big screen please you will not be disappointed next week we will have our favorite performances of 2023 film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van Halgren. without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistants are betty lavendero and veronica phillips special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org for film spotting i'm josh larson and i'm adam kempinar thanks for listening this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.